today's podcast is a look at a recent Warwickshire Cricket Board event. We got the chance to work with Paul Farbrace, who is the current Director of Sport at Warwickshire County Cricket Club, and Ian Bell, who scored over 22,000 first-class runs, including 57 centuries, making 22 of these centuries at test level, all in his 118 appearances for his country. A great event and insights from two experienced cricket legends. Okay, good evening. I think we've got um, we've got a few participants. Very nice of you to join us. Um, where are we today? Tuesday evening. So uh, we started our first one last week. We had Will Rhodes, um, new captain of Warwickshire, and unfortunately, uh, not a great season to take over as captain. That, um, but we're joined by um, we're joined by a special guest tonight, Ian Bell, who I'm sure needs no introduction whatsoever to this group. Um, and we're going to delve into uh, Belly's thinking um, as we go. But um, if you've got any questions at all um, on the uh, the group chat, please type away your questions. Um, and, and the format, we'll probably have about 25 minutes, half an hour of chat with Belly. And then uh, we'll have the next half an hour or so of questions. So if you've got any questions, um, type them up in Zoom group chat and we'll put them to Belly. I'm happy to answer any as well, as long as they've got absolutely nothing to do with COVID-19, um, <laughs> furloughing or the non-cricket of the summer. But uh, we want we, the one thing I would say right from the start is that we're not going to um, play down. Obviously, the, the last two months have been horrendous for everybody. Um, you know, the amount of people that have lost uh, family members and loved ones, you know, we, we're not... Uh, we're not putting that to one side and forgetting that. But this is just a chance to say we've got a, an hour. We're going to talk cricket. We're going to have a good chat. Um, and as I say, none better than to start with, uh, with Ian Bell. So, Belly, um, normally would have been looking forward to, uh, to this season. We'd have been a few games into it by now. You've had a good pre-season. Um, what have you been doing? What's your, uh, what's your last few weeks look like? Well, it's, uh, well I suppose a little bit... Uh... A little bit different to normal, as you said, Fabs. I think um, having obviously been on the road, and we obviously know, and you know yourself, obviously with, with cricket in particular, you don't spend much time at home. So I suppose it's been a bit different having, I suppose, a couple of months literally not leaving home, spending as much time um, with the kids and and um, and wife. So I'm, I think they're ready for me to get going and get the cricket season going. That is for sure. But um, it's well, been it's been nice. Whilst you're on the kids, then what's your subject been? So homeschooling. What are you? What are you oh, specialising? Uh, Geography, history. Where are you at? Yeah, PE, fabs. That's football, cricket, <laughs> bit of biking. Maybe even go to a bit of shoelace tying as well, which has been uh, a success. But um, yeah, it's it's, um, it's on one side, it's been nice to sit at home and I suppose sit at home, but just be with the family. But obviously frustrating as well because one, well, one side, the weather. I mean, who would have thought we'd have the best April? Weather-wise, like this, it's just perfect for cricket, isn't it? And, and a day like today, so it's it's frustrating to be in the garden. Nice to be with the family, but again, it would be nice to be at Edgebaston, um, you know, pushing on and, and getting out there. And I, I see that you've been involved in the launch of an app um, with the ECB over the last week, and that that's been aimed specifically at, at young kids. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I mean again, it's called Dynamo's uh, Cricket. It's a free app. Um, again, for young kids between, I think, 8 and 11, just to get out there and, uh, you know, and, and play some cricket. The whole point, I think, Dynamo's cricket itself is a bit of a follow-on from All-Stars cricket, which I suppose is the uh, is trying to introduce kids into cricket and get as many kids playing as we can. Um, this was obviously going to be launched this summer, obviously, unfortunately, with no access to clubs and, and getting going. But the app was an opportunity for kids, again, to get in the garden, um, with their parents and 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 have a go and, and get out and be healthy and um, you know get as much exercise as possible. There's some great little um, challenges on there, competitions. Um, so yeah, it's been good fun. Obviously, I let Joseph, my son, have a go with that for a couple of days. So it was um, it was it was it was good and he enjoyed it. And I think he was he was happy not listening to my voice every so often. So it was it was good. <laughs> Fantastic. There is um. I guess there's an element of frustration for every single one of us, whether whether it's, you know, whether you're a professional cricketer, whether you're an England international, whether you're a club cricketer, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a young kid, that there's an element of frustration about the lack of game time, but also 
What about the concern? I mean, I, I, I'm nervous of the fact that last summer was a fantastic summer for English cricket. You know, you, you played in, you know, mini Ashes series. You've, you've won mini Ashes. Um, World Cup as well. Fantastic on home soil. A lot of good, you know, the women won the World Cup a couple of years ago. There's been a lot of good built up in English cricket. And then the, the summer grinds to a halt. Do, do you share mm. concerns about whether we can regain that momentum and get the game going yeah. again in this country? Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating, isn't it? I think, as you said, it was such a great summer last year for, for cricket in this country. Um, just what we needed, probably a little bit of a sort of, I suppose, 2005 moment where it really just, cricket just kicked on again and it, and it really caught the imagination. I mean, we couldn't have asked for, um, you know, better games last year, that World Cup final, and then obviously what Stokesy did at, at Headingley and young kids, but they want heroes, don't they? And I think, you know, this year we had that, or last year, sorry, we had the opportunity of the next generation of young cricketers being inspired. And yeah, it's frustrating that again, like you said, that momentum can't be carried on this summer. Um, we still hope that there will be cricket. Um, and we're here, obviously, the England setup is, is gauging to getting some cricket and hopefully on TV, which will be, I suppose, it's not perfect and it's not ideal, but, you know, at least it's a start. Um, but it would be nice to carry on that momentum, as you said, Barbs. It was such an amazing summer for all of us. You know, I mean, that World Cup final in particular um, was just something absolutely incredible. Even after all of the games of international cricket you played, watching Stokes last year in both the final, you know, Joffre bowling that super over, Stokes and Leachy at Headingley and that. Did you get as excited watching England play in big games like that? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think um, the, the nicest thing, I, I suppose, from the World Cup final point of view, I remember I was just sat on the sofa, actually, with my son, Joseph, and watching him was, as it, you know, that was an amazing moment. I mean, I couldn't watch some of those balls. I had to turn away a couple of times. But <laughs> I think that, that was the nicest part for me was, one, we were watching something special that we might not see ever again. Um, but watching my son really, Probably not for the first time. It is obviously like sport, but this was really going to another level where, again, after that happened and finished, he wanted to get in the garden and, and, and play cricket. So it had a bit, I suppose, watching those had a uh, sort of two sides. Very proud to watch, you know, having, you know, as, as you have as well, Fabs, you know, you know, playing with Stokesy when he was younger and, and some of these guys watching them come through and then achieve that. Um, was absolutely incredible. So, yeah, it was amazing to watch. I think, I mean... Again, sometimes those situations, I think they're worse watching than actually being part of them or being yeah. in the middle. So, it was, yeah. Um, it was, yeah, I felt nervous, there's no doubt, watching it. But, um, yeah, incredible for the sport. And, and um, you know, those two games, the Headingley game and the World Cup final, were just um, just incredible. Let's take you back to Stokes here then. I mean, you, you know, you saw Stokes come in and play as a, a raw youngster, very raw, um, obviously skillful, obviously talented. The Ben Stokes that you first saw playing the game, could you see him at that stage being the player and having the impact he's having on games now? Um, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, not to, you know, without, you know, he obviously has gone to another level now without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but I think one, one thing that really stuck in, I mean, again, he came on the, the Australian tour in 2013. We'd obviously won in England. Uh, and then obviously... You know, we, we, we obviously went, not, I wouldn't say light-hearted, but then Mitchell Johnson turned up in Australia. So that series, obviously, suddenly the whole Ashes flipped around very quickly. But Stokesy was on that tour and watching him be a part of that series, where we were on the back foot a lot. Um, and he got an amazing 100 at the Wacker. Uh, and he would just bowl and bowl. And there was not, not one backward step that he took against Australia at that point where that can happen. Um, and you just looked at there and you just thought this guy, not just on talent alone, but in terms of attitude, um, you know, not taking a backward step to Australia at all, willingness to bowl all day in any conditions. Uh, even on that tour, I don't know if you knew that's from Barbs, he had major problems with his boots. So he'd gone to New Balance and, he was, and his feet were bleeding and he was bowling and he just kept, he's typically so hot, he just kept going and going and going. And they were, they were redoing his boots, sending him new ones, changing them up. And they couldn't figure out the problem until they figured out he was wearing a US size, not a UK size. So he's probably not the brightest tool. <laughs> but, but he was like, what you knew about him was that when you wanted to go and it was going to get tight, like we've seen in these, you want him in the middle. He wouldn't take a backward step. I know you spoke about that, how Trevor sees him as a, 
as a character. And when you're in pressure situations, he wants to be in the middle. And I think that was, you could see that stood out clearly uh, in his first tour, even though we lost 5-0. You know, he, he was out there reveling in the challenge against Australia. And it's no surprise that he's gone on and, like I said, achieves what he does. Um, and you can't imagine this England side now without him. Um, you know, the balance of it and where it goes, whether he becomes more of a batter as time goes on and the bowling takes a more of a backward step. But yeah, you, you can't, um, you know, I think his, his improvement and ability to win games of cricket with bat, ball, field um, is incredible. So it, it, I'm, I'm really intrigued there by, you know, you, you talk, you've talked a lot about his personality and his character as much as you have and probably more than you have about his techniques. Um, you, you, you obviously, you know, over 100 test matches, you know, fantastic career for England. You, you would have seen a lot of players that got talked up in the media come and go in the England team. And, you know, in, in terms of the reason, without necessarily naming names, the reason that some are able to transfer their skills into international cricket and those that are not, is it down to technique? Is it down to character? Is it a bit of both? What, what, what's, the, what's the defining factor to allow you to have that success? Um, I, I would say a, a little bit of both. I would say more character. I think I, I, the things that really strike out to me that I think when you get in that England environment, obviously you're going you're gonna to go in and out of form and, and you're not always going to score runs or you're always going to take wickets. The thing that strikes me, and I remember Joe Root coming into that side, and I think he had a willingness as well to do to go above and beyond. Anything for the team, I'll do that. And I think they're the guys, Stokes, Rue, these guys who come in and the t it's not just about me. It's about how am I going to help everyone else around me? I think that, that to me, in that environment, when you do have a bad run, that looks after you as well because you're, you know, when Rudy, you do short leg, you do silly point, I'll get the jumpers, I'll do. And I think those guys who come in with that attitude to, one, they enjoy the challenge, they enjoy the moment, the big occasion, but I think they really get behind the team not just come in with a quite an individual thing because I think again as we said like when you stop scoring runs or you have a tough time those little things around it actually probably give you a game or two more um, you know when you're not playing well and I, that, that's the ones that I suppose when, when I saw the younger this group now come in the young ones who've gone on and been successful they did that in abundance around the team and, and so let, let's, let's delve into the, the mindset of Ian Bell, you get into the England team and, and you know, I, I remember very much um, when you first came into um, prominence and you started playing England under-19s, you know, 16 years of age, and people started talking about this bloke Bell is going to play for England, going to play for many years. At what stage did you think, yeah, I've got a genuine chance of playing international cricket here? Um, yeah, probably at the end of that tour, um going to New Zealand in the 19s. Uh, at 16, I felt that, you know, I scored 100 uh, in my first game out there. Um, and I remember that that following winter was just after England had won the Under-19 World Cup. So that New Zealand team had just been in the final as well. And they still had a few players as well from that side who played in the World Cup. So I'd watched them on TV as well. So it was a quite a big moment. But I think coming back from that tour, there was a little bit of media, but I felt that I had the ability to go on and play for England. And then I suppose the next bit is coming into county cricket, scoring your runs a good volume and and then hopefully kicking on into England A and onwards. But I, no, I was probably, you know, any time I'd gone into any kind of uh, England schools, whether it was under 14s at Esker um, and then into the 19s programme, I'd always scored runs. So it was, I, I felt that I had the ability to go on um, and play for England, not in an arrogant way, but I, just, I did believe that I, I had the ability and I know there was a bit talked about that, um, whether that was a, you know, more pressure than, you know, at that age, I don't know. But, I, you know, I, I certainly believed I could go on and play for England. And, and that's a really interesting point you made, because Trevor Bayliss used to talk a lot um, about the ability to be a prolific run scorer, you know, and, and he was massive on the fact that, it, you know, people that knew how to score runs would be the people who can adapt their game to score runs at the next level. He, he was massive on that. He used to talk about, you know, if, you, if you're prolific, at any level, you have the ability to be prolific at the next level. Um, and that's obviously something you concur with there. So you, you get into first-class cricket. That goes really well. You get selected to play for England. Talk us through your first couple of test matches for England. What, what's, what's that like when you first... You go in the England dressing room 
and you've got a test match and it, it feels different and people tell you it's going to be different. Is it that different to first-class cricket? Um, well, the environment, I think the thing that is different is everything that comes with a test match. So the media coverage, uh, obviously a full house. And I think I was lucky in my debut in a way. I think obviously 2004, we won the championship. I, I was I leading run scorer, I think, in the championship at that time. So I was in the best form I could be in just about to get picked. I think Mark Butcher got injured at the Oval. England had won six out of six test matches that year. I think they beat New Zealand 2-0. And then they were beating West Indies, um, you know, 4-0 as well and going into the last test match um, of the summer. Steve Harmison was number one in the world. Um, Flintoff was fully fit and firing um, and that team was probably just building momentum probably for the next summer for 2005. So I, I remember it felt quite comfortable and nice to go into that dressing room because it was a happy environment. They were winning. Um, you know, I'd played with, uh, you know, obviously Rob Key was there. So I'd been on the academy with Keys. I'd been on the academy with quite a few Harmison um, Flintoff, so I, I knew and Straussy, so I knew a number of those guys as well. So it became, it, it wasn't a massive shock, even though it was there are other players there like a Triscothic or a Vaughan that you admired from a distance. Um, you know, it was a little bit daunting, um, but again, I think I was lucky. As I said, I think we were that team was just at the absolute, you know, was going in the right direction, um, and like I said, it was comfortable and there was nothing, no, I didn't feel like there was any added pressure on me to go out and do what I needed to do. It, it ended up going nicely. I got 70 odd, you know, on debut and we won, I think, by an innings. Um, but what, uh, the one thing I always remember about that was that was Harmy, whether Harmy ever quite got back to his absolute best after that year. Um, but from when he got what he did in Jamaica, that seven for 13 or seven for 14, and then watching him at that stage was, uh, was quite incredible. I, I never quite, it's always difficult when you look back, but I never quite remember the amount of carry and bounce I've ever seen anyone get at that stage at the Oval. Um, you know, and he certainly made Lara hop around. I remember catching Lara fine leg off, off Harmy. Um, but yeah, it was just, I suppose it was a dream come true. Um, you know, and obviously, um, you know, to be there at the Oval, a packed house. I mean, over your, I suppose, over my career, the Oval has a special place because it always seems to be you know, the, you know, that last game of the summer and there's a lot of celebrating that gets done. Well, a lot of sad days, but also a lot of celebrating that gets done in the Oval. So it always has a special special part in, um, I suppose, in an England cricketer's um, um, heart, really. And you, you talk, I mean, you know, you talk there about um, going into a good environment. I mean, that, that's absolutely crucial. And, and I guess, you know, for those of us that remember watching England play through parts of the 80s and certainly you know, parts of the 90s when chopping and changing and playing lots of different players and whatever, people playing one or two test matches, you know, you, you pretty much alluded to the fact that it was easier to go into a good side. What about the the senior players within that team? You know, welcoming of you and, and helpful or is it very much a case of sink or swim when you go in there? No, at that time it felt really good. Triscothic, as we know, a, a fantastic bloke. Um, Vaughan again, was a, a really an enjoyable captain to play for, a very aggressive captain in his tactics. Um, and yeah, the, the, it was good. Every, like I said, everyone, because they were, they were winning, I think everyone was quite comfortable uh, about themselves. They were secure in their own places. So it, 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 did, um, it, it did feel quite nice. And the senior players were, were very good. And also had Gilo there as well, um, you know, as a familiar face in terms of um, Warwickshire. But um, I, mean, I, think, I think it was a good example. Like you said, I think there's so many times when you've watched England in the past that, you know, on the bad, bad results, chopping and changing all the time. And I think, like you said, those central contracts and what happened, I suppose, at that point, the following year is a good example. We got absolutely thumped uh, Lords by Australia in the 2005 Ashes. And I think from years gone by, there would have been changes in that. Yeah. And I think that because it was a good environment and, and it felt like a team, not just 11 people put together, uh, um, obviously that everyone stuck with that. And obviously the rest was... Um, I suppose, quite successful in the test matches to come. But I think that was a good example that in years gone by, there probably would have been two or three changes, maybe a new captain and, yeah. um, you know, things would have been a bit different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were times in the 80s and well, 90s, I mean, where we probably had four captains in one series. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that, that was uh, that was pretty tough England time to be in and around then. I reckon that would have been tough for players coming at that stage. Uh, I mean, like, you know, you talk to Ramps, who we both know very well. I mean, Ramps, I think, said he was dropped um, 17 times or something for England. Mm. I mean, you know, it's no wonder that 
it was hard to settle and feel part yeah. of that uh, that setup. I want I want to delve a little bit more into the mindset of you know of an international batter. So yeah. we, we hear a lot of television programs. We hear a lot of interviews of players talking about you know their, their preparation, how important their, their mindset is, and and you know they, they talk pretty effortless effortlessly about their mindset. International batsmen, you, you must have tough days and there must mm. be days when the ball is in the middle of the bat and you're not moving your feet quite so well. Yeah. When you have those sorts of days, how do you deal with them? How do you come through them? Well, I think um, certainly when things aren't right, I suppose as a batter, again, you're trying to problem solve all the time. I think when you're in the middle and it's not feeling right, you're trying to fight your way through those tough periods to when it does get a bit easier. I think, as you've said, on, on preparation, I mean, again, I'm a... I was a big believer in making sure that I could do absolutely everything I could going into a test match or into a game in preparation so that I could go out and hopefully, you know, play with some freedom and the confidence that I've done all the hard work um, and just try and watch the ball and react. Um, and that was part of my game. I always tried to make training as hard as I can and still now to try and be as prepared as I possibly can to have that clear mind just to watch the ball. Um, and I think my I suppose over time I got better at it but it's a, it's a really tough skill I think Andrew Strauss was probably the best I ever played with at having that kind of level sort of he was always in that sort of level space where whether he got naught or hundreds in the evening when you met him for food or so, you'd never quite know and I think as a batsman in particular I think that's a really good skill to have especially when you're young if you can understand that it is just a game um, you know and you don't you're not just judged on, you know, what you are, you know, on runs alone. It's, it's, uh, you know, there are different things that come with it. But I think that that was a skill I had to get better at through my career was, you know, not, it's not the end of the world if you don't score runs. But I, w I was, I sort of probably learned to be more uh, acceptance of it if I'd done more preparation right. If I hadn't done my preparation right and I didn't score runs, then I know, that would eat away at me and I wouldn't quite know. I'd, I'd be more frustrated myself for, lack of preparation uh, than what I'd do in the middle. Um, if I got the preparation right, then I, I felt I could go into the game with a real free mind to trust my ability and, and, and react to that. And, and if, you, if you look back now at your, um, your international career, at what stage do you reckon you could say, I knew my game, I knew my prep, I knew my game, and, and I knew what, it, what I needed to do to be the best version of Ian Bell. At what stage do you reckon you knew that? I, I sat here now, still remember a moment in Bangladesh where I think I just figured it out. I figured out what I needed to do. And I think that's probably still 40 test matches into my career of really, really with clarity, knowing what my preparation and frame of mind. And even like Mark Borden came in and we did, a, um, obviously psychology is talked around a lot, but I started to understand where I needed to be, the words I needed to use, sort of really getting into my bubble. Um, and I became a much more consistent international cricketer and batsman after that period. I think before it, I still had some good days, but probably some bad and I was a little bit inconsistent. And I think just after that period for, you know, for a good chunk of time, I was a lot more consistent. Um, and, but it took, me, it took me a while to really get the balance mentally. I think I always had the talent and the technique um, to get the whole package together. It took me 35 to 40 test matches, I think, to really say, OK, I, I've, I, I sort of understand this now. And, and you, you mentioned Bangladesh there. What, what mm. was it in that that, what was the light bulb moment? What was it that actually made you really realise that? Well, I think for me, again, it was about, I mean, trusting myself. Again, doing the preparation, trusting my ability. Again, certainly when you're in the subcontinent, when you're starting and playing against spin, you know, it was it was really the, the, the language I had to talk to myself um, to believe that from ball one, I'm a, I'm a, I, I believe I'm a world-class player. Been. So I think when I started to use that kind of language, really, not to everyone, but within your own mind, yeah, believe yeah. it, really sound believing that you're a good player. And I think that then, because always the hardest part of batting, I think, is, is waiting to bat because your mind is... You know, you get the old like people on your, someone on your shoulder saying, "Oh, he's bowling quick," all that, and there's all those, and and how you accept that, put it to a side, and the positiveness you have to use. Um, but it, it took a little bit of time to understand that. I wouldn't say it was always; it was just a bit inconsistent. And I think it was just the language I'd used for myself, uh, and in particular playing in the middle order in the subcontinent. I wanted to be busy 
And we, and we spoke with Sangakara the other day and I felt that that was my best way was to be, when I kept, my, my goal was to, to not just survive, it was, all right, I'm going to put some pressure back on them early. And as soon as I managed to do that playing spin, the game changed. Long on would go back and I'd take easy singles. I might play a paddle sweep early. All of a sudden, the short legs went to 45 and the, the threat seemed to go. And I think the moment I was just a little bit more positive, uh, the game changed a little bit for me. Fantastic. And so we're, we, you mentioned spin there. You, you played against two of the best that's ever played the game in Murali and Warren. Um, both as good as one another, one better than the other. Who, who was the tougher challenge for you? Um, so again, in a slightly different way, I think Murali um, was phenomenal. It was absolutely incredible. I think the, the thing with Murali as well, and, and you've worked with him, was one, I think, when you go to Sri Lanka, it's a tough tour, one, physically. The conditions are incredible. Yeah. So you've got Murali whirling away one end. He's not giving you a lot, and, you've, and it's 40 degrees and 100% humidity, and he's wearing you down. Even when you're playing well against him, he's wearing you down. Um, and I always felt that when you play Sri Lanka as well, they were just um, so smart, street smart cricketers. They knew every day. They were just always, the detail always seemed to be um, incredible, and you're always fighting against Sri Lanka. Um, so I enjoyed the battle against him. I, again, I, I tried to use that against him, be positive early, than just try and survive. I think if you try and survive against the top ones, then you do get yourself into a little bit of trouble. Um, and the same with Warren. I think I, it, it, I had to learn that with Warren. I think to start with, I, was, I gave him too much respect. I, I just tried to survive and pick off the bad ball. But he's, he's not going to, he's too good to do that. He's not going to, unless you put a bit back on him. And I think uh, the second series in Australia, I started to do that. I started to be a little bit more proactive, a bit more busy. Um, and, and had much more success. Um, I think Murali again had all the variations at the time I faced him and, and was particularly hard. Warren probably wasn't at his best when I faced him and he didn't have all the tricks he used to, but what he did, he controlled the, he controlled the environment like I've never seen anyone else. It might be flat, not spinning, doing nothing, but he had an amazing way of controlling the tempo of the game, you know, with the crowd, you know, starting to make you like go round the wicket occasionally and throw one really wide, and it ran, and it really you just had an unbelievable way of trying to throw a little bit of doubt into batters' minds or create something from nowhere. Um, so I think he was phenomenal. Like I said, that myth of there's something happening, um, and I would say to go with that, McGrath at the other end backed him up amazingly well. So I think them yeah. two together, you know, McGrath would give you nothing. You'd just be hitting the top of off stump. Um, you know, and, and you, you, you're just, you know, maidens and, and he's attacking or vice versa with those two. So I thought um, as a pair, they were, they, were, they were exceptionally good. Certainly at an early age in my career, that was, that was a challenge. I still think, I asked this question yesterday actually as well, the, the hardest spinner I faced, and it was when the, the laws changed in, with DRS, was Saeed Ajmal um, in the UAE. Um, again, it... it it, one, the ball was never going to bounce over the stumps. It was only, it was, you know, the bat, it was always there. And he bowled a lot quicker than Murali or Warren. And it was just enough either way. Um, and even through that series, if you speak to the middle order we had, we, we actually struggled picking him. Whereas we felt that with Murali, the long, if you, if you get out, the longer you're out there, you felt like you could just start to see something a little bit different. And it felt like, because it was, and it was a little bit, up, it got up and nicely up and down and it was a bit slower in the air whereas Ajmal was like little medium paces really at pace um, but the rules had changed with DRS and that, that for me at that stage that was the hardest one I would say in my career that we had to face when the rules changed. So when the rules changed and kicking Murali away from outside of Stump or you know the same side Ajmal I mean you know I I've I, I told this story many times. It, we, we played the Asia Cup with Sri Lanka in 2014, and Sri Lanka had this reputation for being a fantastic team of playing spin. We, we were playing the final of the Asia Cup against Pakistan in Dhaka in Bangladesh with Jai Ward and Sankar in that team, Dilshan. And our game plan was literally not to let Ajmal have a wicket. And his eighth over um, of his 10 over spell in that 50 over final, he bowled a maiden. And our entire viewing room clapped the maiden because we hadn't lost a wicket. And and yet, you know, you know, if you if you said to a, an English cricketer, an Australian cricketer, 
you know, Sri Lanka were nervous to play, about playing mm. Ashman. You'd all say, mm. no, no, that's absolute nonsense. But I genuinely, I looked round and every one of them were clapping because that he played out and made without getting a wicket. I mean, just amazing how it works. The, the um, so, so in terms of, you, you talked about taking the attack to those two and being a little bit more positive against them rather than showing them just respect and letting them bowl at you. Mm. I, I guess, again, that comes back to being well-prepared, knowing where, not just where you're going to get your boundary, but where you're going to get your singles. Yeah. Yeah. In the subcontinent, rotating strike is not yeah. as easy as it sounds sometimes. No, and that's where putting pressure on the spinner is it's at the highest level of spin. They're not going to give you rank bad balls. So you have to put them under pressure to get that. They, they're, you're trying to make them make some changes, whether it's um, slightly slower or ball a bit quicker, and that's where you get your release single. Um, and just that, that importance. I mean, again, I, I probably was... I felt I feel quite lucky that through my uh, growing up through the Warwickshire system with Neil Abley, we focused so much on playing spin and going right forward and right back, and those things are just so valuable. The older you get, if you can keep honing those skills of that footwork, um, you know, against the best players, you have to. If you get stuck in the in the middle of the crease, you you are really in massive trouble. You have to pick that length quick, and it doesn't. It, that means so much more when you're playing the best of the best. And like I said, they don't give you the rank bad balls. You, you've got to find ways of putting their length under pressure, whether that's sweeping, coming down, um, to try and create a slightly bad ball or a, or a shorter ball. Um, and it, it, yeah, I think the best players that I played with, one, their footwork was great, but they were very positive um, to try and put uh, pressure back on. But I think as well, again, watching the top players is the, what they do so well. And uh, probably Sanger and Mahela. I remember Mahela, I think, did you get Mahela with us in, um, I think it was in the UAE. And I remember him talking about even before you're playing spin, it's understanding what kind of wicket you're on. So if you're on a day one pitch in the sub and it's flat, then all options are on. If you're on a day five pitch, all of a sudden hitting him over the top straight is not on. And it's sweep shots and an ugly 35 might be an incredible innings on that. And I think there, there's parts of that understanding what conditions you've got worn or merrily in before what they bowl. Because if it's flat, they're, they're, you can still take them on than if the conditions are in their favour. Yeah, yeah, that, and that was a. Uh, I remember Mahela saying that in Dubai before mm. that series against Pakistan, and it was quite an eye opener for some of mm. the, the younger England batsmen. You know, he talked absolutely about play straight early on when mm. the ball skids on on those. I mean, you've already mentioned mm. low pitches, but then once the ball starts to turn, mm. you need to start to play squarer. Yeah. So your V becomes square of the wicket rather than straight down the ground. And quite a few of the young England players. You know, actually, it was a bit of an eye opener for them to hear him talking in that way. Yeah. So, um, look, I, I, I've I've had half an hour there of quizzing you, which I mean, I can spend the next three hours talking to you about that. But I'm I'm going to go into some of the questions. So Howard wants to know about Dynamo's cricket. Junior coach, interested to hear yeah. your views on chances of getting Dynamo's cricket back running any time in school soon. What are your thoughts? Is there Ooh. is there a chance of that? Do you reckon? I, it's a good question. I mean, I suppose things. I mean, things are changing so quickly, aren't they, all the time? And um, we certainly hope so. I mean, again, I'm we're sort of with the, obviously the two uh, kids at home. Obviously, we're listening every day to see whether they're going to go back to school in the near future or, or not. So, um, look, I hope so. It'd be great to have kids, as we've said, with the momentum of where cricket was um, last summer. It'd be it'd be great to get them back playing some cricket, whether it's at school or even even at some clubs. Fantastic. Um, so Paul wants to know. Um, this is this is another one for you. He wants to know who your best coach is that you've worked with. Now you've alluded to Neil Abley. Obviously had a, a huge impact on you as a young cricketer. But just talk us through perhaps a couple of the different coaches that you've worked with, and you know what sort of things they've helped you with, and how perhaps coaching changed as you went through your career. So mm. rather than having to get the basics and the groundwork. Yeah. Yeah. Now, perhaps coaches later in, in your career, people like Duncan Fletcher and others, yeah. the sorts yeah. of things you might have picked up from them? Yeah, I think, no, exactly. I think um, the, the best thing I had, I suppose, certainly from my early ages with Neil, we worked hard on the basics. So I, and I suppose it was probably a little bit easier then because there was no T20 around. It was based around four-day technique. So we'd, we'd really hone good technique around the top of off stump. Um, can you play the short ball? Uh, certainly from about the age of 14, because you're not going to go through to professional cricket if you can't play the short ball. 
um, and then be really good at playing spin. Uh, they were the two real extremes, but the technique was around having a good solid defence and knowing off stumps. So I think I feel for some of the younger generation now because they've got a lot to, on their plate now. Do they want to be a test match player? But also you want to be a T20 player. So there's a lot to, they're going to have to keep things very simple, aren't they? And, and make sure when they practice, they practice really specifically. Um, I think Neil, so Neil was always my go-to for my basic technique, my grounding, good sounding board for me to throw a question to. Um, we then had Bob Warmer come in. Bob helped me understand professional cricket a bit more, um, understand when to use the reverse sweep. Obviously, again, that environment was, if there's no one behind 45 on the offside, you will reverse sweep. So I think, it, again, it just gave, he gave me more game knowledge, I think, than just technique. It, what he, Bob really didn't talk to me about technique. He was trying to understand how to play the game um, at that next level. Um, so he, he was great with that. And he, even still, when he went to Pakistan, I remember going there and actually he gave me some tips, actually, that I'd scratched around in a couple of warm-up games and he came and watched and he actually said, you're, you're grip, gripping it too tight with the bottom hand. I was like, ah, right. Started doing that, then went and got 100 in the test match. So I think he, <laughs> he, regretted, um, he regretted doing that. So, um, but he, he was, again, he, I thought he had a nice um, balance, but it was, it was more game management than technique. Yeah. Um, John Inverosi came in, he, he actually made a big impact, more probably like Neil, more technical work, but he made me the biggest decision or the biggest help from John was the fact that he made me go to Australia and play club cricket, um, which I think from two sides, one, it made me grow up a little bit, mature, you know, fend for myself out in Australia, um, you know, do your own stuff. There's no, you know, no academies to look after. Or I've been through the England setup a lot and, you go through programs that a lot of things are provided for you. This one was, uh, here's the chairman's number, give him a call. He'll sort, like, you sort everything out with him. And it was like, okay. And I think that was a real life lesson for me. I ended up, you know, I, I, not straight away, but I ended up scoring a lot of runs towards the back end of my time there. Um, and, you know, worked with some good people, actually. But I think it was a nice to get away from, yeah. at that time, away from the Warwickshire setup and the England's, uh, like a setup and 19s because I'd been in that a lot. I think it was just a, thrown into an environment where no one knew anything about me. I had to prove and fight for myself. Um, and I think I came back a much more mature, self-sufficient cricketer than actually not coach-reliant, more yeah. using coaches as sounding boards, not just relying on them to yeah. tell me what to do. And I think that was a big um, change for me. Um, Duncan Fletcher at that time was brilliant about playing spin. I know we've, we've spoke about, again, the forward press, um, getting a little bit lower at the crease. So he had, he had some really good theories um, on that. And, and he came up with some amazing um, tactical things as well. The Gilchrist round the wicket, Flintoff bowling, going away, making him play with a straight bat, which caused him a few issues for a couple of years. You know, that was all Fletcher's, um, you know, I thought he was, again, at that time was, you know, he saw things a little bit different. Um, who was great and I think all of them have something a little bit different you know Andy yeah. Andy was a hard man Andy obviously who I probably had the most of my time with with England was you know he was a hard man um, you know he didn't give you a lot there was no real softness about it I, I, I felt that he wanted me to do well but it was very you know if you weren't on it he'd let you know it was no um, you know and it was it was tough but it, I enjoyed I enjoyed my time um, with him um, but yeah, I think all, all of them, I've tried to pick up little bits along the way yeah. um, and have and, uh, definitely helped. But I think that the, the nicest thing, I know we spoke with young players, is trying to have somebody you've got a bit of a sanding board. So for me, Neil, yeah. you know, for a long time, you know, whether it's Duncan Fletcher said something to me, I could just go back to Neil. You know, what do you think of this? You've seen me, you know, yeah. and, and throw some of those. So he was a real sanding board to me through most of my cricket. But I think a lot of other players around or the coaches, sorry, gave me some really good game knowledge and, and, um, and, and um, yeah, game management coaching, really, rather than technique. Brilliant. Fantastic. Um, now, the, the, I'm going to just carry on with Paul's uh, next part of his question. He, he had a good question about coaching there. And then he's, he's asking about no balls. Now, he's talking about no balls and saying, why do third umpires not call them? Now, I, I'm going to take us back to the 2015 Ashes um, the Trent Bridge Test match, famous for Stuart Broad getting his aid for in that morning. And, and more importantly, and I, I don't think I've shared this too often, but 
Trevor Bayliss and I were sat on the balcony. I was wearing shorts. And Trevor, as you know, Belly, and a lot of people that w will have seen Trev, is a man of very few words and emotions. And he leant across when Australia were about 50 for eight and pinched my thigh really hard. And I jumped up and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just pinching you to make sure you're not dreaming. Um, and, and that was probably about as emotional as I think I ever saw Trev get. But that, that test match, I remember our bowlers coming off and a big tall fella for Middlesex who was in our team who bowled exceptionally well at Edgebaston in the test when he got mm. 50s both innings. And that big tall Stephen Finn saying, I reckon I've just got away with 10 no balls in that session, Fabi. And I said, mate, you haven't got away with them because every time you get a wicket, they're going to check. And sure enough, he got a wicket, if you remember, and it was mm. a no ball. And mm. I think we got something like three or four wickets mm. in the course of that game. And mm. the amount of people that say, why does the third umpire not mm. call the no ball? So come on, Belly, why does the third umpire not call the no ball? Well, I suppose it's a, it is a good question. I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I, 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 from a batting point of view, I think they should be checked. I mean, are they, they are checked now all the time, are they? Is that the, at that point, they probably weren't. They, they, check, they check on wickets. But the the, um, the the last Ashes series mm. we we followed with a one day series against Australia, which we beat Australia four one. And the first Test match, um, Mitchell Stark was sorry. The first one day, Mitchell Stark in Brisbane was bowling no balls, mm. and I was watching on the monitor. And at the first drinks break, Simon Fry was the fourth umpire, and I went down to the fence and said, "Sir, when you go on, tell Kumar Damasina, mm. who I know very well from my Sri Lankan time, I said, tell Kumar that." He's bowling no balls. Every mm. over he's bowling no ball. It's costing us a free hit and it's costing us runs. Mm. And I said, I know you'd check it if it's a wicket, but why are you not checking it? Yeah. He came back and he said, Kumar said to tell you he can't look at the front foot and the pad at the same yeah. time. And and so the, the umpires need help. You know, they're being scrutinised more and more now. The, the, the amount of cameras, the amount of reviews, that they, they can't, if they call a no ball, they can't then change their mind. So what yeah. they do is they don't call them. And then they yeah. hope that after a wicket's fallen, it's checked by the fourth up, the third umpire, and then it gets sorted out. But as a batsman, you're out, you're walking off the ground, third umpire mm. runs on, stops you, or the fourth umpire mm. stops you. You stand on the boundary edge for what seems like ages, yeah. they yeah. check it, and you're still out, and you have to walk off. I mean, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a nightmare situation, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I think you're right as well, because if they're not calling them for bowlers, then they, the rhythm, if they're calling them bowlers, then their rhythm isn't going to be as good, is it? They're always a little bit worried about the front foot as well. So I think there's a part to, they should be getting called. And I agree with you as well. It's all to down and the, the umpires get their percentage, don't they, of how much they get wrong and right, don't they? So if they don't call it, technically they haven't got anything wrong, have they? So Absolutely they all want right. to live in that high bracket of percentage. So if they live on, if they don't look at that, they get the LBs right, then their marks are always higher, which I agree, they need to have some help with the, um, with the front foot. Yeah, 100%. Now, which leads us really nicely on because Roger... As, as messaging to say that he first saw you at Warwickshire and you used to bowl belly. Mm. Now, he said that you were an excellent bowler, swung it both ways, seemed it. Now, come on, Rod, you must have had a beer tonight before you asked yeah. this question. It's not my dad, is it? Uh, what, why, did, why, why did you give bowling up, belly? I mean, just think, you could have played 200 uh, test matches rather than uh, 100. You could have been, you know, Ian Botham, <laughs> Freddie Flintoff. I, I wasn't, I don't think it was because I, I necessarily gave it up. I, I mean, Obviously, before my started playing for England, I was used quite a lot in the in the side. So me and Trotty would always bowl a couple. I think then, obviously, when you go away and, and you know, unfortunately, you don't play as much for your county as you would like. We obviously signed Darren Maddy as well. So all of a sudden, you know, you come back into a side which has got its set routine. Bowlers are bowling certain overs. So I think over time, because I wasn't bowling in a test match, and then I'd come back and Trotty would still have a bowl. Darren Maddy would have a bowl. Um, and it just became, the opportunity became less and less. And the less I bowled, if I did get a chance, I probably wouldn't bowl as well. I mean, whether I should have kept it up and, and, and kept going, I suppose my focus was just scoring as many runs for England as I could at the time. Um, but I suppose, you know, before that, my job was to be the fifth seamer to be able to do that. But then when I came back, there were other people doing that role at the time for Warwickshire. So I think it, over time, it just ended up taking a back seat. And, um, you know, it, was, it came down to catching as much as you could at slip and, and um, and scoring as many runs as you can. So there you go, Roger. The actual answer he was trying to tell you there is it was much better standing at slip and catching them, having a bit <laughs> of a rest, 
and saving all his energy to score as many runs as he could. <laughs> That's what he was really trying to tell yeah, us. Yeah, what I now, have, I've asked Matt as well because I keep seeing on social media the wicket of the day, and I have said I did get a couple, and I haven't seen it yet. So I'm, I'm expecting wicket of the day at some point to flip on and and see a, see a wicket for myself. Well, if we had another couple of hours, we'd go through your wickets, but we're going to move on. <laughs> we won't do that long. We won't do that. <laughs> There's a question on here from Annabelle asking about um, your top coaching moments um, when you were a youngster. Now, you've touched on, obviously, how important Neil Aberley was in getting yeah. the basics right. Um, and the other part of the question was who influenced you the most when you started playing cricket? So, you've obviously talked about Neil there. Um, yeah. What got you into cricket in the first place? What, what, I mean, um, was it like Joseph watching on the sofa and yeah, just, oh, bit, I want to play that game? Yeah, I mean, we obviously had a very, I suppose, quite a sporty family. So it was either football, cricket, rugby constantly. And obviously with a younger brother, we were always in the garden scrapping and, and whatever sport was on before cricket really took its, its path. I suppose, to be honest with you, I, I remember quite simply I mean we were I, I grew up in the 90s Warwickshire were the best team in the country and, and I remember getting tickets I didn't know we were going to go uh, and my dad got tickets for myself my granddad family to go to the Lord's final and obviously we watched uh, we watched Warwickshire beat um, Sussex um, Asif didn't score 100 ran on the outfield um, you know with the with all the Warwickshire fans and from that day I just wanted to play cricket and I think that that was pure and simple I suppose the moment that I, you know, wasn't football, rugby or anything like that. It was, I just wanted to play cricket. Um, you know, and I think that that was, you know, I couldn't have grown up. You couldn't grow up in a better area if you wanted to be a Warwickshire cricketer than, than, than at that point. Um, and I think going on with that, I think I was lucky. You know, I played at Coventry North Warwick and they, they, they just put me in the first team and they let me play. I think, again, I look back, they didn't have to. Um, and I grew a lot, actually, not from coming out of youth cricket at around 14, playing against men. My growth in my game went like that uh, when I went back into then junior cricket. And I think, again, I look at the people there, Dave Robinson, um, people that gave me the opportunity, you know, whether I scored runs or I didn't, or I batted for 30 overs and got 10. You know, they just uh, saw something in me and they allowed me to go and, and bat, you know, and, and play in the Birmingham League, you know, Premier League, which... Again, without that opportunity and those people around me, I wouldn't have been able to, I suppose, go on as quick as I did. Brilliant. Well, that, that leads us really nicely into Scott Thompson's question. Now, Scott said you played in the Birmingham League last year. Um, yeah, not a lot. Well, I was going to say a bit briefly, <laughs> but, but we, we, won't, uh, we won't spend too much time dwelling on that ball. Um, but the question is quite intriguing, actually. Um, how do we take players at these levels into playing test cricket and not just becoming one-day warriors. And should we? Should we be saying we want to try and give everybody the opportunity to play all forms of the game? Or is it actually acceptable to say, if somebody's really good at a one-day skill, we keep them going down that one-day route rather than trying to teach them other skills and maybe lose those one-day skills that they have to try and make them play an all-round game? Where do you stand on that view? Yeah, no, I think it's very acceptable. I think it is... I think if you ask any player, a top player or a good player, they want to play four-day cricket or they want to play test match cricket. That, that's the, you, you see that. Yeah. But I, see, I, I do see it very viable now that you're going to have players who are going to be 2020 players or they're going to be white ball cricketers um, and may not necessarily go down the four-day route. I do think that's the case. But I would say majority of players, if you were to ask them, they want to be good red ball cricketers as well. Yeah. I think that's where people... It, it's a big challenge, isn't it? And I yeah. think even... That, that's what I enjoyed listening to some of the Joss Butler interviews. You know, he doesn't have to play test cricket. You know, he can go and earn a lot of money playing the IPL and all the, fran all the franchises would have him. But there's something there that he recognises he wants to play, he has to play or he wants to play test match cricket, which I think is a great message to all the next generation below him that our, one of our best white ball, t certainly T20 cricketers, still has a drive to test himself in test match cricket, which we would ideally like that's the case. And in the future, that's still the case. But I, I do believe, I don't, I don't have a problem with people that want to go the 2020 route, that their game suits that. Um, as I said, I, I, I think the next, or the, certainly the younger guys, it's, it's not easy. Like you said, with prep, you've got to get your practice right. Um, but you have to know that, okay, this net is a Red Bull net. And I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to leave the ball. I'm going to get my mind. But then I've got to have a T20 net, which is very, very different. 
Yeah. And the technique might be a bit different. You might be a bit wider in your stance. You might not be triggering back and across. You have your options. Um, and the technique might be slightly different. So I think it's definitely fine for me that if people want to go that route, I still believe that most people, if you ask them, they will still want to dominate in Red Bull cricket as well as T20 cricket. Yeah. And you, you've alluded to all the way through this, and I, I certainly concur with you in that all the best players, even in white ball cricket, the best players in the world have still got the basics of their game right. You know, yeah. and, and that, that for me is, you know, the absolute key. So for coaches working with young players, get the basics right, get the balance of batting right. The ability to judge length comes from having your, your eyes level and your head still. You know, even Jaya Sereri, people look at and say, you know, very unconventional, but he, he his key was making sure that his eyes stayed level mm. and his head was still. Mm. As soon as his bat got a bit far away from him, tap in mm. and he started to fall over a little bit, he became yeah. vulnerable. Once he stood himself up and levelled his shoulders and hips up, he, he can mm. play anything, red or white ball. So yeah. the, the fundamentals uh, are still key though, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually quite surprised, Fabs, as well. This um, winter going with the 19s, I expected to go into that environment and see just 16 kids who want to play T20 cricket. But when I spoke to the batters in particular, a lot of them were like, no, no, I want to play test cricket. Yeah. Which again, for the 19-year-old, I, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to walk into, whether it was all going to be, you know, ramping over their heads and reverse ramping and doing all that stuff. But I would say, well, 90% of that group all want to go and play test cricket for England. I mean, they're not all going to, but yeah. again, it still sees that 19 group now see test cricket as the pinnacle, which is nice to, you know, it's nice to hear. Fantastic. We've got a bit of comedy now because Neil wants to know about um, your footballing days. And he's saying that you used to play for Coventry, but what Correct. made you choose between cricket and not football? Um, well, I, I, having seen you play in the warm-ups in the morning, yeah. lack of pace, lack of yeah. vision, lack of passing. Other than that, you weren't a bad player. So, yeah, no, uh, I obviously uh, carried a drink. I, I probably could carry the drinks quite well. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't put in a shift too much for Coventry, that is for sure. Especially as a Villa fan. I don't even know how it really happened, to be honest with you. But it was... I used it, to be honest with you, if I was, I used it in the winter, it's just fitness, really. I enjoyed football and it was good, yeah. but going to the training, doing all the, the stuff was good for my cricket as well. And that would be still, I still say to young kids now, like, play as much sport and different as you can. You'll find your way. Yeah. And obviously at some point, if you become a pro or you're getting, then you'll have to cut back. But I, I still think when you're playing the variety of sports you can, it helps, doesn't it? I think the hand-eye coordination and everything you do, um, it helps it certainly helped my cricket down the line. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we, we, we both know of a bloke who's currently chairman of the England Selectors who, you know, very good um, technical batter, but wasn't the greatest fielder. Um, and, um, yeah, Neil, Neil's appreciated that. He's put his thumbs up. Good, Neil. I'm glad you enjoyed that. But, yeah, we know the, the current chairman of England Selectors who technically a very good batter, not the greatest fielder. And a great example to all kids that the more other sports you can play, and as you say, balance, coordination, yeah. space, it definitely helps in terms of, I mean, you've only got to look at Stokes and Butler. Yeah. You know, Butler can do everything. I mean, ridiculous yeah. whatever he can do, but it's yeah. no surprise that that gameplay that he then takes into the game and the awareness is absolutely yeah. key. And I think that's where players like you have done that exactly the same. Howard's asking, and I think we've probably got this, what's your favourite form of the game to play? Yeah. Is it the same in terms of watching? And I reckon you're, you're probably going to say test cricket for both. But Yeah, oh, 100%. I, I've, obviously, I still enjoy going to a T20 and watching that. I think it was a huge part in the game for T20 and it is entertaining. But yeah, there's, no, there's nothing better, is there, than sitting and watching an, a day of an Ashes cricket game. I mean, that, um, that Headingley test match, the whole of day five, in, you could sit there for hours. Well, you, you know, and it, it's most amazing um, when you get stuck into a test match and it is tight. There's nothing better, really. Um, and even from my, I think, you know, I suppose, you know, we never, I never had the opportunity to win a World Cup or certainly, certainly did, weren't at that level. But, you know, I think I always felt that after, a, if you won a test match after over five days, you know, when you sat there with your mates after it, I mean, it's the most satisfying, it was always my most satisfying format of the game to win because it could take so long. You could go down to the last hour on day five against some really good players. And um, it's, um, yeah, they were the most satisfying for me. Fantastic. Um, Paul's come back and said, thanks very much for the answer on Nobles, but could cricket be a bit more like rugby, whereby 
actually that the in their team they alert one another to uh to, to key things like the ball pitching outside leg start i mean in cricket it actually i think it works pretty well we've certainly got var covered mm. um yeah we've got them covered definitely. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that i mean the fact that you know i mean they don't know whether to run to the screen on the side of the pitch or listen to yeah. their ear and you know, I think half the time it's not connected anyway that some of the decisions they come up with in bar. But in cricket, I mean, we've both seen that, you know, that the, the the system, the review system actually works pretty well. I, I've got one change I would make that when it comes to this umpire's call, if the ball is just nipping the stumps and the bail falls off, I still think that's out. So if any part mm. of the ball's touching the stumps, it's out because... If when you've been bowled occasionally and very occasionally mm. the balls just nick your stump and the yeah, bail falls off, you're yeah, still out. Yeah, so yeah, why should you not be out LBW? Yeah, yeah. So no, that would be the one change I would make. A any changes you make? No, to I that? was. I, no, I'm pleased that now that you don't. If if like, for the, for that example as well, if it's clipping and it's given not out, like great. Well, technically, if they'd have given it out, the original decision was out. It would have been out. So I, I'm I'm happy that you don't lose the review anymore. I think when yeah. it first came in. Yeah. Even you might be right, but it was all about the umpire's initial decision, as we know, as we've said a little bit. A lot of umpires can be a little bit not out now with the system because if they give it out and they have to overturn it, then their marks go down rather than yeah. the, the, the way of being a little bit more cautious. So yeah. I'm happy in a way that, but I, I've got no problem if it's hitting. It's hitting for me, as you said. Um, but it's certainly, it was a game changer when it came in. There's no doubt, like you said, using your pad just went out the window. So. Yeah, I don't think, like you said, we're a million miles away in cricket, really. Um, it's a pretty good system. It's a lot better than, like you said, VAR, so that is for sure. Yeah, no, that's that's a shocking system. I can't. I mean, how, how you can be offside by your armpit, I'll never know. Yeah. The um, <laughs> footballers are vain enough as it is. If they start shaving under their arms as well, just to stop being offside, then the game has gone mad, hasn't it? I, I was actually involved in the first series. I was assistant coach for Sri Lanka. We played India um, 2008 in Sri Lanka. And it was the first ever series with the uh, umpire review system. And it was three per innings per team. Um, mm. And uh, you know Dilshan very well. And Dilshan was given out by Mark Benson, the England umpire, for naught, caught behind, and reviewed it before Mark had actually got his finger out of his coat pocket to give it yeah. out. He was already reviewing it before the finger went up. And there wasn't enough evidence to support the decision. And he was on naught, and Benny had to overturn it which, as you remember from Benny, he wasn't the most enthusiastic umpire. I mean, his, his square was about that big. Um, he could have drawn it with one hand. He was a pretty laid-back character. Anyway, I had to give him not out. And the Indians were absolutely distraught. And Dilshan went on to get 100, um, which further compounded their misery. And he also, he was fielding at leg slip to Murali bowling around the wicket. Sachin Tendulkar came into that series needing 110 runs to be leading run score in Test cricket history. And he left still needing 30 from three test matches, six innings. It was a series where Mendis came into the scene, got yeah. 29 wickets. So Murali, I think, got 21. Mendis, 29 wickets in the series. And Dilshan fielding at leg slip. And Murali round the wicket, down the leg side. Sachin went to sweep and went through. Dilshan caught it one-handed, running around appealing. Nobody else on the ground, any sign of appealing. And Dilshan convinced Mahela that Sachin had hit it. And so Mahela, because it were three reviews, said, OK, OK, we'll review it. And uh, it just nicked his thumb. And you just saw the ball flick his thumb as it went through. And he was given out. And from that moment on, that's why the yeah. Indians didn't want yeah, the, didn't the want review it, system yeah. in the game. They, they didn't I do, want it because it went against the great Sachin. Yeah, and I do believe there's players that I would play, they, they should have been banned from using because Trotty would have, he'd have reviewed it when his stumps are flat on the floor as well. So... <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a few of them that would like they should like team chats before you can't use it that is for sure <laughs> I, I absolutely think the best one I, I've ever seen Alex Hales in a one day game caught mid wicket at Trent Bridge um, playing for England caught mid wicket in this one day game and him and Rooty came together in the middle and then he reviewed it and so I, I, I said well I've never seen anybody review one to mid wicket and uh, jumped up, as we all do. You know, it's like, you all run inside, quick look at the TV. He smashed it. Anyway, Hales came off, so out, comes off. And as you know, at Trent Bridge, upstairs in the home change room, you've got the main part of the change room, the small bit at the back. And Hales went in there. And I, so I, 
I was desperate to go and ask him what he was thinking. And he went and he sat down and to get to the toilets in there, you have to go past that little bit and upstairs into the cha- into the toilets. So I, I waited until he sat down and then I made as if I was going to the toilet and I started walking up the stairs. I was upstairs, I was just staring at him like that. And he looked up at me and he said, Rooty made me do it. And he completely blamed Rooty for wasting a review. So, uh, I mean, it was, it was hilarious. It was absolutely hilarious. Um, right, another question for you from, uh, from Matt here. Matt's asking about video analysis to improve your game. Is it something that you've used during your career? Uh, 100%. I think... Um... I think if you can see things back as well as feel them, I think it's always good. Not just the, I always find sometimes you video things and, you, and people sometimes try and look at the negatives or what have I done wrong? Or certainly you do in the season, you get out and, you, you, and we can now watch it back. And I think sometimes you've got to be careful how you use it because I think you can actually look at the really good stuff you do. Yeah. Um, and then that, that as well, the muscle memory that you get from feeling it and then you're reconfirming it from watching it. So I think that, um, used in the right way, it's a really powerful thing to do. Um, but sometimes people use it on the real negative side and they watch how they get out all the time and rather than use it you know, in the nets where they can you know, hit a real nice shot and go, okay, I want to watch that back because that felt right. So getting the balance of how you use it is, is important. Brilliant, fantastic. Um, well, I, I, I've got one that I, I wanted to ask earlier um, and you've, you've alluded to it a little bit in, in one of your answers about the 19s. Obviously, we, we all want to see you back playing cricket, scoring thousands of runs and, you know, seeing that fantastic drive through the offside, which you're, you know, you're famous for. I mean, you weren't bad at the square cut as well, but and, mm. and you could clip off your bat. So, you know, it wasn't just one shot. But you, you obviously get into a stage where, you know, you, you do start to think about life after playing. And, mm. you know, you're, you're very well prepared. I mean, it's come out throughout this last hour that preparation... Um, mm. is, is absolutely key. So I'm guessing there's an element of preparation for life after Ian Bell, the batsman. Um, yep. Coaching sounds like it's a route you're going to go down or are we going to see you uh, in the Sky commentary box uh, waffling on like the rest of them? I'm, I'm not. I, yeah, I'm probably not in the Sky box. I mean, I, I enjoy from time to time going in and talking about cricket, but I think yep. the one thing I would say from my experience this winter is the fact that I, I enjoyed, again, being part of a team, helping guys go and try and achieve what they want to do. Um, so I really enjoyed that feeling of, like I said, going out and, and doing that. So I think I didn't really, you know, when you do commentary, it's good and you talk about the game, it's great, but you're not really attached to the game. And I still felt, you know, with coaching, you had that great opportunity to, like I said, you're helping other people go out and try and score runs. So for me, you know, the feeling when Dan Mousley got the 100 at the end of our World Cup, um, you know, it, it, was a, it meant a lot. I mean, watching him, you know, do it was great. But all the work that we'd put in and the conversations yeah. um, was satisfying. So I really enjoyed the, I, I enjoyed everything about it. So I think, yeah, for me, it's, that's the route I'd like to go down when I finished. Um, you know, it's, it, it was obviously that we had the lows of that tour as, uh, as well. But yeah, I, I think that for me is definitely the route uh, I'd like to go and do all the qualifications, make sure I, you know, get all that right, and um, um, yeah, look for some good challenges. Fantastic, brilliant. We're, we're going to go back. Ty's got a question here. Ty wants to know who was the most difficult bowler you faced and why. Uh, I probably uh, already obviously mentioned Side Ajmal. I think at that period of time with DRS, um, he was just at his peak as well. He, he hadn't been called as well. I know. Uh, Later on, he got called for his action. Um, that, that was no doubt, um, not just for me, I think for the group, the middle order in particular, it was, it was the hardest to start against. We'd always be 20 for one or 20 for none, and all of a sudden we'd be 50 for five. It was, it was constantly like that every series. But he was the hardest to, to start against, but it was the pacey bowl. He just, it was so quick, um, a bit either way, not massive spin, just enough either way. And then with DRS, um, as soon as it clipped bad, it was it was out. So I'd say that was the hardest part. But then again, you know, after he'd been done for, obviously he'd had to remodel his action. He was a different bowler. I remember scoring 100 against him when he was at Worcester. And, you know, he was a completely different um, different bowler. But I'd, I'd say he was um, he was the best. I thought Sayer Khan for a period of time was incredibly yeah. skillful. Yeah. Um, he had a se- I think he had a, a season with Worcester where he got about 80 wickets, 70 wickets, yeah. and he learned how to bowl with the Duke's ball. 
and I think India beat us in a series in about 2007-8 here and he was phenomenal. He could bowl over the wicket, round the wicket with the new ball, but also then with the reversing ball, which a lot of subcontinent bowlers have got great skills with that. So he had a, he had a two or three year period. Um, he was really challenging, not, not on pace because he wasn't the most quick, but his angles and how he used and set you up. That, that was a real challenge, actually. Yeah. Side, see, Saeed Ajmal, I, I think during my time with, with Sri Lanka, I, I thought he was exceptional bowler. I, and I, I, I really enjoyed Saeed Ajmal. I mean, he came into mm. the game late, absolute gentleman. I mean, his time mm. at, yeah. at Worcester, um, I, I was coaching Kent for a couple of years, um, not very successfully, actually, during that two-year period. But we did win the odd game. But we, we played Worcester at Worcester at New Road. And we played a 40-over game. Side was playing in the game. And I said to all of our lads, listen, Side Ajmel, I've got him cracked for you, lads. All you've got to do is watch for the thumb. When he bowls his doosra, the thumb actually appears on top of the ball. So you see the release and you see the thumb. So he's giving you the thumbs up. It's a doosra. When he bowls his off spinner, you don't see the thumb. When you see the doosra, the thumb comes over the top. So we're in a huddle on the outfield and we literally just finished the chat and we'd finished to talk about Syed and, Syed and and he came walking along and he called out, Fabi, how are you? And I said, I'm good, buddy. How are you? And he said, don't forget to tell them about the thumb and kept walking. And they did our lads completely in the head. Absolutely did them completely in the head. I mean, he was a, he was a genius of a bowler. And in the end, it was a shame. I mean, mm. like, according to the rules, you know, he had to change. But it was a shame because he was a real character in the game, yeah. wasn't he? And that's... I think um, him and Murray had the same. They, they, it was never... They'd never say anything aggressive at you. They'd just be smiling at you, which you knew. You're like, oh, my God. He knows he's got us on toast here. It was just they were laughing more than anything, which was um, certainly in the subcontinent was, was hard work. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely. Look, we, we, we've gone over the hour. Um, there's no more questions dropping. I, I mean, I've got pages here. I mean, I'd love to ask you more and more about um, your, your time in the England setup. But look, I, I think you've given us a really good insight into the inner thinking of a high quality international batsman. You know, you don't play under test matches and score the amount of runs that you played without being top quality. But, you know, I think we've all taken away tonight that it's you know, it's as much about the mental makeup of anybody to succeed at the highest level for that length of time. The mental makeup is absolutely key. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, just to share with the group, we had a group conversation with our squad the other day with Kumar Sangakara, who, who you know you played with and against a lot. And you know, he he was someone that um, talked about exactly the same things. And if you know, if we put Sangha on with you. You know, you, you both would be talking about so many similarities and so many things. But for me, the key is mentally, can you cope with everything that goes with international cricket? Can you cope with the pressure of it? Can you cope with the scrutiny of it? And can you keep, you know, driving yourself forward to be the best you can be every single day? Because it sounds an easy thing to do, but it isn't an easy thing to do to, uh, to keep driving yourself on. And that, that takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? So, Absolutely. Uh, so brilliant. Howard's already, he's on to it. He's saying, Ian, excellent chat, great listening and look forward to, uh, to more of these and thank you for your insights. And I think Howard's will probably sum up uh, everybody's tonight. So, Barry, thank you very much. Right. Indeed, for your Thanks, time. Bob. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for your honesty. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks a lot, Thanks, everyone. Bob. Thank you. Cheers, Cheers. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Billy. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Cheers, guys. Brilliant. Cheers, guys. Thank you.